and welcome to this episode. I'm your host, Rod Jones. In this series, I'll be bringing you news, views and interviews about the trends, the tactics, the techniques and the technologies of CX, contact centres and the broader BPO sector. This series is made possible by the generous support of Corby Speech Analytics. And my guest today is all the way from Australia, Simon Chris. Uh, we were reminiscing a little bit earlier. I think we met 25, it may have been even 28 years ago, Simon, if I remember correctly, at some conference or other back there. Simon is the Chief Innovation Officer of the CX Innovation Institute and is based in Melbourne. Well, welcome, Simon, and uh, uh, looking forward to having a chat this morning. Yeah, thanks, Rod. I think you're right. Um, I think it's a little more than 25 years, but it'll be around there somewhere. Um, and actually, I think the very first time we met was over a video conference call as we were kicking off an association in Australia. We had yourself and a guy from New Zealand and someone from the UK on a, you know, back then on the very big, expensive teleconferencing system. Um and I think that was the first time we spoke. <laughs> yeah, you're quite right. That takes me back because then, then it was a year or two later that I actually came over. It was the Advanced Style Call Center Conference in Melbourne. Yeah. We, uh, we had a few beers. I, yeah, that's right. Long time back. So we've both endured the industry. You've got 30 years under your belt. Uh, I'm cracking 45 at the moment. So uh, I get some yep. sort of a a veteran status, I suppose, but uh, yeah, we'll get It is the type of industry where uh, even if you try to get out, you just wind up kind of coming back in. I think, yeah, I think once you're a, a customer service, customer experience person, I think you're that for life. I, I just don't think you get away from it. Yeah, well, I think as we, as we get towards our 30 plus years in it, I think we start getting some more credibility, which helps. Yep. <laughs> Helps the commercial side of things, yeah. But uh, Simon, you're 30 years. I mean, you've travelled around Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, China. Um, and then you had quite a long stint, if I recall, in Singapore. Well, that was in Hong was, Kong. Yeah, was, 15, was 15 years in Hong Kong, one of those years in Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, but working all over the globe. So uh, I've been blessed. I remember, if I can um, indulge myself, um, many, many years ago, I was a team leader in a call centre for a telco. And I remember the operations manager pulling us into her office and saying to us, if you can get hold of this call centre thing, it'll take you anywhere you want to go. And at the time, I remember thinking, what a load of management claptrap. I actually had to find her about six years ago, and I found her living in Perth, long since retired, to thank her for what she said, because she was absolutely right. This industry has taken me everywhere from Cape Town to Poland to Uzbekistan to China to, you know, you. there's a country on the map almost. Um, I've kind of managed to get there and it's all been through this industry. Yeah, so if there's right. any team leaders out there listening, hang in there. That's right, yeah. It's, it's interesting how we fall into this. You say you start out as a call center agent. Um, I was reminiscing the other day with um, Tracy Freeman, who you know very well. Mm. Um, and she was asking me how I got into call centers. 
And it was actually back in the early 80s, around 84, 85. Um, my partner and I had a business. We were running customer clubs for a, a steakhouse chain and a cinema chain. And, and back in those days, we had like two and a half million members of various clubs um, running on DOS-based systems, green screen <laughs> in those days. Um, and we had a room full of ladies uh, sitting behind terminals with headsets on and toll-free numbers. And we didn't yep. call it the call center then. It was the club management center. But there were 20 women yep. out there. It was a call center. That was 88. Um, so, and uh, yep. never looked back on it. So, But uh, interesting, yeah. you should say, it takes you to interesting places. I think the my adventure in this space has been running a seminar, two-day seminar called world-class call centers masterclass um i've now done 175 of them in in africa 17 countries so i've been into wow. deepest darkest africa is from ethiopia and uganda and kenya and ghana and nigeria etc um so yeah as you said call centers take us to some interesting places so absolutely your, your your time in hong kong man we involved in the airline industry, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah, so at the time when I when I first moved to Hong Kong, I was running my own consultancy, um, and it was uh, it was it was pretty small. We got to about fifteen people, and then the 08 crisis kind of took care of that business for us, um, as it did with a lot of businesses. And I kind of moved back into the you know within the operations area, which is where I'd come from. And I worked for a couple of the major banks, um, and then I got tapped on the shoulder and asked to come and join Cathay Pacific. And so I was with Cathay for a few years and helped them take 52 contact centers down into four, um, which involved building a new one in Krakow in Poland. Um, and from there, I moved across and spent a bit of time with Expedia, the global travel company. Um, which was a great company to work for as well, and kind of stayed with them right up until I moved back to Australia about four years ago. Okay, so you've, you've really spread your wings a bit. But yeah, my experience with, with airlines is working with Ethiopian Airlines. Um, mm. um, little known fact, but Ethiopian Airlines is one of the fastest growing in the world, and um, I rank it as, as a top, top carrier. But um Six, seven years ago, um, their call centers in were in India outsourced and literally closed down overnight for whatever reasons and diverted mm -hmm. all the calls back to Addison. And uh, there was no call center there at all, nothing. And um, I'm very proud to say that uh, working with the team up there over the last six years, they now have a certified world-class contact center. Um, yeah. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting business to play in, the, the airlines. Um, I used to try and tell the staff, you're not selling airline tickets. You're selling Rod's chance to catch up with his brother. And you're selling Mary's chance to go and see her auntie. And you're selling, you know, that, that type of thing. You, you know, you're selling the experience. But it's also interesting in that, a lot of people don't realize the small, tiny margins that airlines operate on. They're three, four, five percent profitable. Um, it's just the size of what they do. And also the funny part is the call centers are there to support passengers, 
But for most airlines, it's not the humans that make the money. It's the cargo that makes the money. Yeah. It's just handy to carry some humans as well. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting, the, the travel industry is a, is a great industry to play in. Yeah, I must say, I, I pop up to Addis or every six or eight months and do a little audit on the operation and keep it on track. But uh, very exciting to be part mm. of that, that industry. Now, back to Australia. Um, mm. What's happening in Australia? What's the nature of the industry out there? CX, contact centre, um, industry bodies. How mature is the industry out there at the moment? Yeah, that's and that's a great question. It's a a very very mature market. So you know, if you're a WFM vendor in Australia, there's virtually no first generation call centers left to sell to. You're you're trying to unseat an incumbent to get your thing in there. It, it's very very mature. Um, the the primary association that we have is called the Oz Contact Association. Um, it's the biggest contact center association kind of in the region, um, and they do some amazing work, including running academies that certify people at levels. And so, you know, it's it's a serious association. Um, the industry itself, I think, kind of paused in the 1990s and didn't really take a sizable step forward. I just saw lots of doing the same until COVID hit. And COVID has fundamentally, I actually wrote in a magazine the other day, um, did you feel the tectonic move in the earth's plate? Because that's what COVID has done to the contact center industry here. So um, a number of things happened around COVID to shake things up. One was quite a bit of Australia was outsourced to the Philippines and the Philippines contact center industry literally collapsed overnight with COVID. They didn't have access to laptops. People that went to work from home didn't have a stable internet connection at home. Contact centers just fell over left, right and center. And so a lot of that stuff had to be rapidly onshored. So for many years, the IT departments and risk departments that said, oh, we can't have people working from home, suddenly had no choice. I live yeah. in Melbourne. It was the world's most lockdown city over COVID. So we I had to work so, from yeah. home. But uh, the other thing is the, other... the, the Philippines, uh, we, um, as a consequence of the literally overnight shutdown of the BPO sector in Philippines, we in South Africa picked up 10, 15,000 jobs literally yes. of, overnight. Yeah, um, and and so did Fiji. Oddly enough, yeah. Fiji just suddenly boomed onto the world stage um, yeah. as a as a as a location. Um, the other things that happened under under COVID, of course, were um, you know the, uh, IT projects, self automation, self service automation projects got funded. Projects that couldn't get funding for ten years were suddenly overfunded, um, and as a population we became more heavily reliant on online shopping, online experiences that we've, mm. than we've ever been before. And now the expectation from customers is set quite high that, well, I can do anything online. And when they can't, there's a lot of backlash against brands. So there really has been a fundamental shift in Australia around CX as a result of COVID. Okay, with, with that as a kind of a segue into it, 
Um, and the cost of running operations in Australia, I've been monitoring that um, going through the roof. Is there um, no doubt a, a swing towards automation and the bot syndrome? And, yeah, so and, and being just to get you know customer and consumer feedback on that. Um, which way is the wind blowing there? Yeah, look, pound for pound, Australia is one of the most expensive places on the earth to run a CX operation. Um, and that's not just me saying it, you know, specialists like Peter Ryan that I know you know well um, have published that too. It's it's expensive to run here. We have a lot of, you know, government overheads and staff costs and things that, you know, just make it expensive. And during COVID, everybody was okay with, oh, well, we've just got to do it so you can have the budget. And now what we're starting to see is leadership in these companies saying, well, all of that was nice, but we don't have that budget anymore. You're going to have to start finding cheaper ways to do it. And the first move is to, well, what can we automate? What can we bring on? Blah, 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 blah. And Australians are, we're a very weird bunch of people, right? For people who haven't met Australians, we're a little quirky, um, we're happy to take on a new experience so long as that experience lives up to our expectations and flows and makes sense. So we're not opposed to McDonald's saying, do you want fries with that? If we pulled up at McDonald's and ordered a hamburger and they said, would you like a gumboot with that? We're going to kick out, right? And that's the thing is Australians for the most part are, are quietly pleasant until they're not, and then they're incredibly vocal. Um, and, you know, one piles on top of another. One person says, I hate this airline. Two, three, four, five people start piling onto that. So it's uh, it's an interesting kind of time. There is a push towards automation. So some of the government departments that had big BPO contracts are starting to shrink those contracts because they're doing more through automation. Yeah. However, mm -hmm. there is still uh, a sizable opportunity for Australian contacts and Australian businesses to offshore at least a portion of their human work that still needs to be human. It's an interesting one that I'm starting to see coming out of the UK. I've got a couple of instances where I've helped UK-based companies that have maybe gone over the top with automation without too much thinking about it, and um, call it call it spade a spade. It's digital screw-ups um, mm -hmm. where there's consumer kickback against the organisations, and it's uh, it's started a, a kind of proliferation of live agent support in South Africa for UK-based digital screw up uh, yep. one call center down in cape town i was down at the opening a little less than a year ago opened with 50 agents and are now ramping up to nearly 500 all servicing yeah. the same uk client um, yep. another inquiry came through a little while back uh, it took me a while to figure out who it was it was one of the major dom it was domino's pizzas in the states uh, we're looking for a thousand fte's uh, 24 hours a day, okay, just to handle digital screw-ups. Yep. Um, 
But this is uh, not this is not sad, new. Sadly, we didn't get that job. That where it went to uh, Ghana, I believe. Uh, this is, but this is not new, Rod. Right? You and I have been around long enough. This is two old guys of the industry talking. What happened when we first implemented IVRs? IVR, oh my absolutely. God! What an abomination! You know, you saw people putting in IVRs with thirty-seven options wide and fifteen options deep, and you lost the will to live after three minutes, let alone remember why Guess you what? called. They're still doing it, they're and they're still doing it. doing it, and and they're doing the same with digital. Right? Here's this great conversational AI technology. Great, we'll just implement it. And even worse now, what's coming along is the generative AI, which is even more powerful. And I think you're going to see some amazing. Uh, outcomes, but you're just as many going to see as many cock-ups as you would amazing outcomes. You know, it's the old Babe Ruth story. You know, Babe Ruth at his prime had more home runs than anyone else, and he simultaneously held the record for most strikeouts. And I think it's going to be the same story with a lot of what's going on with some of these AI-powered bots is that people are not going to think through enough um, what the yeah. potential outcomes could be, and you're going to see just as many screw-ups as you are great wins. Well, you know, it's, it's good news for consultants to go and fix the screw-ups afterwards <laughs> on the one hand. Uh, it's also good news for countries like South Africa where we put a lot of effort into promoting our BPO sector. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, we've got labour, we've got, you know, uh, cost arbitrage, definitely. Uh, mm. We've got we got connectivity. So, you know, we poised to take on a lot of overflow work and particularly in the in the voice support space. Yeah. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Moving into your current exciting publishing of your book, the AI empowered customer experience. Um do you, you know, mean uh, this book? Yeah, well, to put you Sorry, on, I had but, to do that. Yeah, you're not on video, but uh, we're I'll put details in the description box below um, in the podcast as well. But um, I, I was intrigued when I saw it published, what, a couple of weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, um, yep. just how, how up-to-date it was. I mean, that must have been burning a lot of midnight oil. So, but where did, that, where did the book start and over what period did you put it together? And then, yeah. then we'll, and, I'd like to unpack, you know, some sure. of the key, key components in it. Yeah, look, the book the book was never meant to be a book. It was meant to be a white paper, and it just got out of control. Um, I, you know, normally white papers are five, six, seven pages. I got to 10. I'd hardly scratched the surface. I got to 20. I still had a lot to say. Um, and so I just pushed forward, and all of a sudden it was a, about, you know, just shy of 100 pages of A4. And uh, I, I, I guess I'd kind of... I'd been doing research around this. I'd been interested in it for quite a while, even before OpenAI kind of launched generative AI to the to the mass market. I'd had an interest in AI and its uses and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so over a few weeks, I started putting together some ideas because what was happening was I was speaking at conferences and the like, and people were coming up to me and saying, oh, I have to get ChatGPT in my business. And I'm like, Why? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to use it? Um, and there, you know, I still to this day say that AI is a little bit like fine wine. Everybody knows the name. Everybody enjoys it. 
but people don't really understand what's going on beneath the covers, right? Um, and so I wanted to put something out there that explained AI in absolute layman's terms, which is the way I understand things, and then talked about how would you practically use it. And so the book took four weeks to write, um, cover to cover, um, which I'm told is almost a new world record. I don't understand why. Um, the big problem was exactly what you alluded to, though. It's so up to date. I actually had to put a disclaimer at the front of the book that said, this book is correct as of the 1st of July already. And it's only been out just on four weeks, like literally 1st yeah. of August. Um, I could add another 10 pages to the book because yeah. stuff is just moving that fast. And I actually got to the point of, you know, overnight I'd get some information, I'd get something else in, I'd add it to the book, and the next night I'd add something up, and I had to stop in the end and just say, I have to put this book out or it's never going to get out the door um, because it, yeah. it, it's changing so fast. It's being adapted and molded so fast. And how, how would you describe it? I mean, my take on it is that when I first read it, and again, I had a, a scan through it this morning, um, it's, it's almost a, a practical guide for anybody vaguely looking at or thinking or under pressure uh, to implement AI of any kind. That's a great description. It is a CX practitioner's guide. So, you know, and it'll range from people that are saying, God, I've heard this word AI, I've seen it all over my LinkedIn, I need to find out more, to people who are, oh, I run a CX operation and I want to find out how, you know, I want to be knowledgeable enough that I can have a sensible conversation with the head of technology without sounding like a numpty about how we would use it, um, through to people who are actively considering their very first implementation and want to understand about the risks and the issues. So I made sure at the back of the book to talk about what some of the risks are and what some of the um, the, the issues around ethics and responsible AI are. That's where I want to take this conversation because to mm. me there's a big red flag there. And uh, I was intrigued there's a heap of red flags. <laughs> yeah. I was intrigued to see that you and, and just fill me in on that one. In Australia, there seems to be some government movement towards regulation and guidelines and institutions. So what, what's happening on the ground out there? Because yeah, there are, we need there are to... some. There are some. They're still struggling to kind of make sense of it and how do they wrestle it to the ground. The European Union's had a crack. Um, you know, I love that Sam Altman from OpenAI kind of said, yes, yes, we need regulation. The uh, EU came up with some regulations and he went, oh, no, no, not those ones. Um, and so the US is playing with their laws. The UK is trying to play with their laws and Australia is trying to get their, their head around it. We do have some really good um, kind of think tanks that have just come together of AI leaders in Australia. And, you know, we're talking, not, not, not me, but, you know, some of the big AI leaders are kind of getting together and, you know, saying, how do we make sure, you know, or is has the horse already bolted and we can't close the gate? Um, you know, I, I've enjoyed watching these things flying around the internet about, 
all these people asking for there to be a pause on AI development for six months. Okay, is Russia going to pause for six yeah. months? Is China going to pause for six months? Is Vietnam going to put in their course not? Um, and so is that is that even really viable? So it, it's a it's a it's an absolute mixed house right now. Um, and therefore companies really need to be aware of what's going on and how do they make sure they stay on the right side of the line around ethics um, and responsible use. And that's that's hard to do because ethics is such a dodgy kind of subject um, when it comes to AI. But I think, you know, you've, you've covered that quite well, I think, in, in your book, um, at least making people aware that you've mm. got to focus on as much on the ethics as on the technology and how to deploy yep. it. And, of course, the, the great big unanswered question is how is man in the street, woman in the street, person in the street going to react to the beast? Um, yes. I think it was on LinkedIn this morning, you'd uh, comment on a, an AI um, telemarketing um, application, yes. uh, which I listened to, which was fascinating. And it was really, really well done. But mm -hmm. dot, 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 uh, where's it sure. going to go? And what is the real consumer going to say when that automated call comes through and we know it's AI? And and what's ethical and what's not? So is it ethical yeah. to say, hi, you're getting a call from an AI system today? Um, is that does is that not needed? Uh, people are using AI every day. They just don't realize they use it. So if you've ever logged on to Uber, Expedia, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of it, you've used AI for the last yeah. five years and haven't even realized you're using it. Um, you know, how is it that you do a Google search and then next time you go into Facebook, you're getting offered exactly what it was that you were Google searching, right? There's, there's, there's AI stuff running in the background on all of that. But at what point does an individual brand need to declare its ethical position? If I say we're using a large language model to generate an answer, do I also need then to tell the customer which large language model, what the provenance is and all that sort of stuff? Or do I not need to go into that depth? Do customers care? Do they not? My kind of take on it is if the customer is getting the answer or the assistance that they want and it's logical and feels like a human-ish interaction, they're probably going to be okay with it. But as soon as it doesn't, it's back to that thing, as soon as it doesn't go right, they're going to explode about it, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be a very interesting time um, to see what happens with AI in our industry. Yeah. Well, let's keep an eye on that. And uh, just before we wrap up, uh, so I'm mm. on a mission to get you out here to uh, sunny South Africa. Hopefully, in the summer. I'd love to be back in South Africa. And you guys have got to... some great wine, I got to say. Well, looking at that, I saw in your your bio there that you've got a master's in viticulture and wine technology uh, yeah how far back does that go was that fairly recent that was fairly recent well yeah that was i probably finished that only seven or eight years ago um i got to the point of realizing that i really needed the word masters in my cv i think we've all come to that point at some at some point or other um and i just couldn't think about staring down the barrel of an mba 
And I've always had a love of wine and I found this master's degree that involved drinking, basically. Um, and so I thought, well, that's me. Uh, as a result of that, I've done a lot of wine holidays and I have actually spent a bit of time in Stellenbosch in Franschuk, um, sampling some of the amazing Pinotage and other wines from that region um, and absolutely love it. So, yeah, I would I would welcome another trip to South Africa. Well, let's, uh, let's try and make it happen because I think one of the things that you get a lot of interest is your view on how the South African BPO sector and uh, operators should be positioning themselves to win a piece of Australian business. Um, mm. So uh, let me see if I can't get a group together and uh, yeah. get you out to uh, to Stellenbosch. In fact, uh, my, my sponsors here, Corby Speech Analytics, um, are based in Stellenbosch. Um, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, so we, we go down there every now and then and we... Uh, we do yeah, what we look, have, to, have to do. <laughs> look, I, I think I think you've got some great opportunity and some advantage that you can leverage, but at the same time, you're coming under threat from AI, but you're also coming under threat from all these emerging places that are competing for that offshore. Um, as you know, I was just recently in Uzbekistan, there's Georgia, there's a number of even little, a little island nation of Fiji, um, is putting up a fight. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be kind of do or die time pretty soon for, for that BPO sector. Yeah. And funny enough, for even one of our local uh, BPOs, you might have come across them, Newton. Newton's mm -hmm. opened an operation in Fiji, uh, yep. South African-based operation. So interesting yeah, so to see is, how uh, that's going. So is Mine Pearl, I think. Uh, Mine Pearl's moved out yeah. there, yeah. But uh, let's see if we can't get you out here rather sooner than later and uh, have a few glasses and uh, shoot the breeze and catch up on the great world of AI and CX. Love to do it. Um, it's been a great pleasure. Lots to catch up on. We still need to uh, uh, share a bit more about the good old days, the veterans between us. And uh, I agree. And uh, I look forward to that in the fullness of time, hopefully very soon. So. Uh, all Thanks, the best. Uh, have a good evening, and uh, we'll catch up very soon. It's been great catching up. Chat soon. Thank you for joining this episode. I hope that you enjoyed the content. Please subscribe for more regular industry news and updates. And for more information about the remarkable Corby Speech Analytics solution and how this low-cost technology can significantly improve your contact center's performance and compliance, please email me or visit the Corby website at corby.io or you can find Corby on LinkedIn. And always remember, dial with a smile.